It feels like you can do almost anything on your phone nowadays. Beyond just, you know, making a phone call. There's listening to music, texting, games, photography, changing your thermostat, watching the delivery driver drop a package at your front door. The point I'm trying to make is that more and more of our lives have been driven into our mobile phones. And where people go, so goes money. Shopping, sending cash to your friends or super, paying your Uber driver, all of these things are part of a growing financial ecosystem known as mobile payments. But I've been curious. Do you really know what's going on with your money in these apps? Is the cash you store on them secure? Are your payments protected from fraud like they are with a credit card? Am I the only one who is totally clueless about this, yet still continue to use all of the apps on my phone? Today, I sit down with an expert from the Pew Charitable Trusts to talk about an interesting survey they conducted about consumers and mobile payments. We try to answer these questions and more. Are consumers adopting mobile payment technology? Do consumers trust mobile payments? What sort of mobile payments are protected and what aren't? We cover all of that in today's episode. I'm Matt Longacre, and this is Simply Stated. So today I have Rachel Siegel in the studio with me. Thanks so much for joining me today, Rachel. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. If you could just uh, describe yourself a little bit and some of the work you do. Sure. So I'm a senior associate at the Pew Charitable Trust in the consumer finance team. And I conduct original research with the team on transaction accounts, such as checking, prepaid, and mobile payments, uh, to inform efforts to improve their safety and transparency. And I've also done work on the Federal Reserve's Faster Payments Task Force. Great. And so today, the primary reason I have you joining me is to talk about mobile payments. And so I've got my phone open in front of me, and uh, I thought this question was going to be really easy. And then the more I thought about it, uh, it actually got a little harder for me is what really counts as a mobile payment? So I've got all these apps in front of me. Maybe you can describe it, and then maybe I'll ask you about a few of them. So what counts as a mobile payment? Sure. So anytime you're making a transaction from your cell phone, that would be a mobile payment. So think about anytime you have a mobile wallet on there or even an app where you're buying a salad or a coffee, you're doing any kind of transaction, maybe you're calling a car and the payment is seamlessly integrated into that process, that would all be a mobile payment. And it's easy for some consumers to forget they've even made that payment because their credit or debit card is connected they do their transaction, and it's just uh, integrated into the process. But in our research, one of the things we excluded is uh, we don't think about mobile banking apps as part of mobile payments, um, just so that we've been studying specifically non-bank-type transactions. So the boundaries we have here then, so my Amazon app counts, PayPal counts, Uber counts, but my uh, banking app, even if it has Zelle in it, does not count. Right. So along that line, as long as you're using your phone to facilitate that transaction, Mm -hmm. all of those would be mobile payments. Mm -hmm. If you're doing it in a web browser or in an app, it doesn't matter. All those would be mobile payments. But any payment that you might make from your laptop or your computer would no longer be a mobile payment. So if you're using any of those companies to move money, 
you would you wouldn't be making a mobile payment in that case. Got it. And then even uh, prepaid apps like Starbucks, when you're when you're scanning and getting all your stars, but you have your money on there, that counts as well. Yes, absolutely. All right, perfect. So we've sort of set the boundary of what we're talking about, and. What's curious to me is, as far as I understand it, it took established players in the payment space what seems like decades, maybe even generations of people to kind of establish themselves. These new mobile payments players, are they building a whole new infrastructure? Are they leveraging the current infrastructure? How are they going about uh, sort of getting into uh, the payment space? So in a lot of ways, mobile payments are a complement to banking. And when we think about this, it's important to note that according to the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, 93.5% of Americans currently have a bank account. And a lot of consumers are using debit or credit or their checking account to connect in with their mobile payment. And so this is just another way to do one of those transactions. But because of this, Money moves on the same rails or infrastructure as your credit card or your debit card. So it might seem like it's instantaneous. So I might open a payment app and I've decided to send Matt some money. Um, I can press a button and it, it tells me that I've moved money to you. And then you open your app and it says, I've received money from Rachel. So that looks like the process was instantaneous. But most of the time, it still takes two to three business days for that money to actually move and be usable by you in your bank account. One of the things that we see happening is an innovation towards an instantaneous payment system called Faster Payments. And in this kind of system, we are seeing a new kind of way of doing payments that actually changes the the face of of a payment system. So I want to get to Faster Payments a little later, but uh, you hit on something really important here is that it seems like these apps are working with current companies, current banks, and current systems to use that sort of rail that's already there to get money from one place to another. They're just building new user experiences, new apps, and things like that. Right. It's all built on top of the the older infrastructure. Got it. Okay. So you conducted a survey, um, a pretty in-depth one, uh, really interesting information in it. And the questions you were asking were about how Americans are using mobile payments. So can you tell me a little bit about that survey and what interesting things you found out of it? Sure. So that that survey is a nationally representative survey of American consumers uh, over the age of 18. And that helped us to understand not only how consumers are using mobile payments, also whether they have chosen to adopt them, when they might avoid mobile payments, and how they view mobile payments compared with other payment types like credit or debit or prepaid cards and even other options like cash. And so we're able to compare and contrast how consumers view and use all those different payment types. Got it. And what are some key headline results of things that you found? Well, one of the things we've seen is that mobile payments have become increasingly mainstream. Um, So over the last five to 10 years, we've seen about 56% now say they use a mobile payment. Um, But they tend to trust those payments a little bit less than they do debit or credit card. Overall, consumers are more concerned with the protections that they have on mobile payments compared Mm -hmm. with a debit or a credit card. And in certain cases, many even trust cash more than those other electronic payment types. Okay. And so I noticed uh, one thing that you mentioned in that that research from the survey was that 
Uh, mobile payments growth has slowed down recently. Is some of that because of this lack of trust or what's driving this sort of slowing of growth in mobile payments? So it's not necessarily that the growth of mobile payments has slowed, but more that it hasn't kept pace uh, with what has been expected by industry. Uh, And essentially, we know that nearly 9 in 10 Americans have a phone that could make a mobile payment, but I mentioned 56% have made a mobile payment in the last year, that was projected to be much higher. And we also know from our research that 30% reported saying that they avoid mobile payments in at least certain instances, sometimes all the time, to protect against payment issues. And I, and I want to highlight here that there are a few groups that are less likely to have adopted mobile payments. The first is really older Americans tend not to adopt mobile payments. So the baby boomer generation and older are much less likely to have adopted mobile payments than Gen X or younger. But also consumers who are not employed, those who don't have bank accounts, consumers with a high school degree or less, and lower income households with incomes under $60,000 a year tend not to have adopted mobile payments at the same kinds of rates as others. So you already explained that there's some skepticism about uh, or or some concerns about the protections of mobile payments. What other things are maybe driving consumer hesitancy to use them? So Pew's research shows uh, three factors that seem to be stymieing adoption and use. Mm. Uh, The first is that consumers avoid them due to concerns about loss of funds. Mm -hmm. And second, they tend to trust protections on debit and credit cards more. But third... Consumers who avoid mobile payments often cite concerns with privacy and security as some of the reasons that they're choosing not to use them. And when we think about trust, within our survey, we asked about consumer views on payments, and we wanted to understand better how they view different payments and the protections that they felt they had um, against payment issues like theft and double billing. So within that, almost two-thirds of consumers view a credit card on its own as well-protected against payment issues, but only a third say the same thing about a mobile payment that uses a credit card to, to complete that transaction. So there's a very strong difference there, and that's true among mobile payment users as well as those who never use mobile payments. So is this because of a, a lack of understanding of protections, or do consumers understand what protections are there um, with mobile payments but still don't trust them because they don't trust those protections? It seems that um, within mobile payments, there are some differences in outcomes. And when we looked at mobile payment disputes, we saw some strong differences, and, I, and this hints at why consumers are more concerned. So... Consumers who had a dispute with a mobile payment voiced that it was um, more difficult and they had more trouble knowing whom to contact compared with those who had a dispute using just a credit card or a debit card. And this seems to be some of the reason that consumers trust them less. There are also, when we asked the consumers in our survey about why they might avoid mobile payments oftentimes the issues of security and privacy were brought up. So it seems like there there could be many issues going on, not just a problem of misinformation for consumers, but also one of challenges uh, solving things on the back end and 
concern about how well they're protected in terms of the data privacy. So security, privacy, and even if they understand the protections, they don't necessarily have a good experience trying to get resolution if they lose their funds. That's right. Got it. And to help me understand, uh, just to make sure I understand the difference between these protections, if the app is connected directly to your credit card and you're making a payment, the credit card protections still apply, correct? That's right. Now, if the app has stored value on it, it depends. Can you help me understand the difference between uh, when you store value on an app, whether or not it has protections? Sure. So by and large, we're, we're really at a unique moment in time in payments because the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau recently uh, enacted the prepaid rule and it went into effect last year. Most mobile payments have similar protections to a debit card in terms of recourse if money is lost or stolen. But there is a limitation there, and that limitation comes if you're loading funds into an app that can only be used with one company. That's more considered a gift card Mm -hmm. uh, rather than a, a prepaid account or anything else. And so in those cases, those funds don't fall into that, and they don't have those same protections. So, th- so then go back to my Starbucks app, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because I can only use it at Starbucks, that money that's in there doesn't have the same protections as another app where I could use the money in multiple places. That's right. Anytime you can't use uh, it anywhere but that one company, that mm-hmm. would be considered a gift card, and so it wouldn't have those same protections. But as I noted, by and large, um, almost all mobile payments do have those stronger protections now. And so we have pretty good parity across uh, electronic payments in terms of recourse for consumers when there's theft or fraud. Got it. And so there are a lot of businesses that are still really hoping that mobile payments has a really high adoption rate, continues to grow. If we're hoping for a world that's more ideal for a mobile payments future, where consumers are adequately protected, adoption is high, transactions are easier, what needs to happen? So now that we have this prepaid rule in place, we, we've reached that nice parity between a lot of different payment types. Uh, but regulators really need to consider how to maintain that parity, even as we see new kinds of innovations come on the market and new approaches in payments. And they also need to think about how consumers are protected against privacy and data breaches, because that is one of the factors we've seen, not only in this most recent survey, but in previous research we've done, we've continued to hear over the years that consumers are concerned with privacy and security and that that's a big reason they're not adopting mobile payments as much. I wanted to take a moment because we've been talking a lot about mobile payments And there's another piece of this puzzle that we alluded to before, which was these underlying rails that help the payment system work. And you mentioned faster payments. And you also mentioned that you are part of, or you were part of the faster payments task force for the Federal Reserve. So um, there's this system, and we we, uh, did a podcast about a month ago uh, talking a bit about about FedNow and faster payments. Uh, Can you just describe to me in your own words, what is... FedNow, and why is it such a big, significant thing? FedNow is a new service that's slated to be launched by the Federal Reserve Banks around 2024. Uh, And it's going to facilitate faster payment services and settlement, similar to what's currently on the market from the clearinghouse. 
Uh, and this will help faster payments to reach all financial institutions and broaden availability to consumers largely. Okay. And you were part of this Faster Payments Task Force. What did the task force do for the Federal Reserve in the lead up to them planning for and building out FedNow? So I represented the Pew Charitable Trust and the Faster Payments Task Force. And the task force did several things. First of all, we discussed the most important aspects of a successful faster payments system in the United States. And as a group, we created the effectiveness criteria, including things like ubiquity, efficiency, safety and security, and a fast speed. Uh, And from this effort, two papers were written that detailed the work of the task force and our recommendations. Within the work for the second paper, this included an analysis of some faster payment proposals uh, for how to move money within a faster payment system. And one of the more interesting things that I thought came out as a result of those proposals was that many of them proposed to reach consumers and for those consumers to use the faster payment system using mobile payments. So that's Mm -hmm. where faster payments and mobile payments will often likely connect. Mm -hmm. And so bringing all that together, as FedNow is built out and eventually rolls out um, alongside some other real-time payment systems, what is the end impact for a consumer? So as FedNow uh, works to expand faster payments, uh, consumers will be able to send and receive money in an instantaneous way or nearly instantaneous. Essentially, instead of the two to three business days that I talked about before that money often moves right now, uh, money sent through a faster payment system will be sent and received almost immediately. And so in that scenario I gave before, you'd be able to, I would send you money and you'd be able to not only receive it in your bank account, but go on to pay a bill or another person using those funds right away instead of waiting for the the money to become available to you. And the funds will be moving in an irrevocable way, which means that you won't be able to stop a payment once you've initiated it, but it also means that it's usable right away because um, of that irrevocability. And faster payments will help consumers and businesses in some very specific ways, especially consumers living paycheck to paycheck. This could be a very powerful change. For those who currently um, are paying overdraft fees or late bill payments, things like that, where there's a timing issue, if it means that funds move from me to you in that amount of time, and then you're able to go on and pay that bill right away instead of waiting, they'll be able to avoid those fees. What it won't do is it's not going to eliminate overdrafts entirely, and it won't eliminate the need for loans for people who are just short on cash. Banks will still be able to allow faster payments to go through and for consumers to incur an overdraft. And for businesses, there's a little bit of a different uh, angle here. The speed and certainty of funds will help reduce risks, risks that the money isn't good to use, and Mm -hmm. it'll be able to move the tools that they need in order to operate more seamlessly and quickly back and forth uh, because those funds are available. So that sounds like a great perk, but irrevocability also seems like there's some risk associated with that. Is that true? Yes, uh, there there is some risk associated with that. So within a faster payment system, the sender will authenticate themselves and authorize the payment to go through. That payment goes through immediately, which is great as long as that's actually the business or the person you intended to pay. But in certain situations, like if a scammer has called somebody and convinced them that they should pay them money and they shouldn't, that money will be pushed out and authenticated and authorized and the the funds are permanently lost and there's no recourse to recover those funds. And 
We've seen this um, in, in the UK. They have a faster payment system that's been in place for over a decade, and they've seen this situation really become a problem for consumers and have had, have had started to act to try to fix this problem. So cybersecurity becomes ever more important, privacy and protection becomes ever more important, and making sure our regulations are up to date for consumers as well, I guess, right? Right, absolutely. So that loops it all back again to the consumers and mobile payments. Well, that's really awesome. Thank you so much for sharing all of this information. Um, It's really valuable, uh, really interesting for me, for regulators, for everyone just to know exactly what's going on in the world of mobile payments. Thanks again so much, Rachel. Thank you. That's a wrap for today. If you enjoyed this interview and want to learn more about Pew's consumer finance work, you can visit pewtrusts.org slash money. That's pewtrusts.org slash money. If you want to listen to more things nerd finance, please subscribe to this podcast. You can find it in any podcast app. Just search for Simply Stated or CSBS or the Conference of State Bank Supervisors. We've got a ton of new content lined up this year. If you don't have time for longer podcasts, this is one of the shorter of the longer ones. We've even got sound bites that are 10 minutes or less to get you up to speed on the industry lingo and all the current news. You can also check out our stuff at csbs.org. Just head over to the newsroom and you can get this podcast right into your inbox along with our blogs and weekly newsletter. All you got to do is subscribe. Thanks so much for joining. I'm Matt Longacre and this was Simply Stated.